Today we are talking with theatre director, HIV plus and LGBTQ plus activist Andrew Keats. Welcome everyone to our 35th in our series of podcasts brought to you by Good Thinking, London's digital mental wellbeing service, providing round-the-clock mental wellbeing support for those living or working in London. This is Sonia Etetwani, and in this podcast, Andrew describes powerfully the life of someone in the LGBTQ plus community and how, if we can listen to how life is for them, we can develop better services to support them. This podcast contains mature adult themes. Over to you, Richard and Andrew. Thank you, Sonia, and thank you, Andrew, so much for giving us your time today. With good thinking, we recognise that many communities in London can find it difficult supporting their mental health, and they can find that complex, challenging, even sort of navigating the resources available. It'd be really interesting to hear from you, Andrew, what you felt it would be like for an LGBTQ plus person who might be wanting to do something to support their mental health. Yes, I mean, specifically in regards to the pandemic. I think the thing that I certainly felt like I lost, which might not be exclusive to the LGBTQ Q plus community, but certainly has different dynamics, and I'll explain those dynamics in a moment. And that's just just this overwhelming lack of tribe. You know, I'm a I'm a theatre director. I'm HIV positive. I'm a magician, believe it or not. Okay. Uh, I, you know, so I've spent my life sort of going from different groups that fundamentally I feel safe in, and. Ultimately, being being you know an LGBTQ plus person that grew up under things like Section 28, I was terribly, terribly bullied when I was at school to the point of hospitalisation. You know, I had a a government overlooking that essentially didn't want me to have the same rights as my classmates. Indeed, some politicians like Thatcher and Widdicombe, you know, openly condoning homosexuality. And so, from that, I've spent you know I'm I'm 35 years old. I've been in and out of A&Es at various points of my life. I've been with friends when they've been beaten or insulted in the street. And you see, the thing with being with other LGBTQ plus people is that wonderful sense, firstly, of just feeling safe. And, you know, I have that with, you know, when I'm with, admittedly, when I talk about theatre, that isn't a huge uh, stretch from the LGBTQ plus community. But, you know, of course, when I'm working with actors and with like-minded people, like-minded creative people, you just find that you relax more. And when you haven't got that that stimulus, I suppose, from like-minded people, that's when I felt like I was losing my identity a bit. You know, I was I wasn't talking with actors and other directors one on one. Yes, of course, there were texts and phone calls and things. But just that sense of coming together with somebody who is like minded to lose that that reflection that you get from working with somebody. I I found deeply isolating and, and deeply lonely. It's funny, isn't it? As human beings, we work as sponges, you know, we take so much in. And I found with the pandemic, I was taking in such doom and gloom. And by virtue of being alone, you know, I didn't have anyone to talk that through with, to to work out what all this meant, you know, to, to almost have informal counselling sessions, you know, as I've, as we do when we go to the pub. Uh, the reason we feel great at the end of the pub is not only the, the, the beers and martinis we've drank, uh, but also we've managed to get all that stuff off our chest. And instead, it was me often seeing Boris Johnson on television or curling up with my cat. And all of my tribes seemed further away than than I'd ever experienced before. That's such a powerful account of of a lived experience as we often talk about in mental health, having so many dimensions. But I think it is important to just mention again that in linking up with like-minded people, as you describe, whilst there is that familiarity of someone who may understand your experience, the emphasis on safety, I don't think mm. should be put aside too too quickly. And and then, of course, you're, you're talking about all the implicit supports and understanding together that come from being able to connect with people who do understand that experience. But it's a, a very powerful description, Andrew, of just how some communities do still struggle with the simple human right of being safe. If I can share something with you, which is often quite revelatory, particularly for, you know, a lot of my sort of uh, heterosexual or white heterosexual friends. There's a thing that I do completely automatically whenever I walk into any room or any environment. And that's the first thing I do when I walk into a room. And it, it's, it's still conscious. It's not a subconscious thing. It's a conscious decision. And that's to identify all the threats in the room. So I know where the doors are. I look where the perhaps stereotypical problems may occur. So are there any sort of, you know, lager wielding football hooligans that I've had issues with or uh, and, and you search the room for your your safe areas. 
And it's, it's really interesting because when I've spoken to a lot of straight men about this, they've said, do you really do that? And I go, absolutely. And it's just a really interesting sort of psychological prism that I have that a lot of people don't and would never consider that I would because, you know, oh, just being, you know, being gay is fine nowadays, isn't it? And you want to go this this thing of, you know, LGBTQ plus people that it's it's somehow everything is fine. is just a fallacy. It's just uh, it's a horrible thing. It's a really horrible thing. And and I think this is why we still have things like gay bars and gay organizations or LGBTQ plus safe spaces. And I hasten to add they are becoming few and far between. But the ones that have remained, it's because stepping in through those doors, it's almost like you're in a world where you're allowed to be yourself and you're not going to get bottled. And I, I use that term bottled completely accurately because one only need be in the two brewers in Clapham, a fantastic large old you know, community gay club, but one only needs to step out into the street as we've seen countless times. And because somebody is perhaps still in the mindset that they're free to be whoever they want and move however they want and speak however they want, that's when a bottle will end up over their head and they end up in A&E. So I think we should be very careful when we talk about LGBTQ plus people being, you know, everything's fine now, because frankly, in my experience, it's not. I guess the question for me that arises, how do you perceive NHS services or traditional mental health services? Because of course, some will be delivered through charities and and, uh, other similar agencies. Can we create those sort of spaces where you might even feel there is somebody you can talk to safely Although I take your point, as soon as you step outside that hospital, that clinic, you're confronted with a very different world again. But I'd be interested in your thoughts about how the NHS, in its different ways, could also be more supportive and responsive to those in the LGBTQ plus community. Well, uh, firstly, cards on the table. Uh, My mum and sister are both nurses for the NHS, so I'm a huge champion of, of the NHS. In regards to LGBTQ+, I think I think I think it's very difficult, not, not necessarily for me, because I mean, I came out that I was gay when I was 13. I think what's very interesting is me taking my mind back to where the NHS was all those years ago. Things like sexual health, for example, was very prevalent and, and then extremely prevalent later in my life. But it was just things like the kinds of questions that were being asked, which might have made me feel like I was being outed before I was out. And I think people still carry a lot of trauma. One of them, there are still friends of mine to this day who, you know, are not comfortable enough to be out, both in in the showbiz world and 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 the public. So, I think sometimes there can be the presumption that somebody is gay, uh, but they're not necessarily comfortable to talk about it. Yeah. But I understand, by virtue of how tight timings are in the NHS, quite often I, I've known NHS workers try to apply a bit of Occam's razor, you know, trying to get straight to the point because they've got this amount of time to either make a diagnosis or to make a referral or, or a checkup or, or an outpatient appointment. And so time is short and it's getting straight to the cause as soon as possible. But we have to remember that being LGBTQ+, to talk about our experiences, it, it's very different to talking about, well, I've got a cough and a bit of a limp, you know, because, because those things are, are physical and outside of our body. When it comes to LGBTQ plus psychology, I think we have to be careful about depending on the on the individual, how we prize open talking about what for many of us has been a secret existence um, or indeed might continue to be a secret existence. And that sadly comes with more time and sensitivity, which is very difficult when timings are so reduced and resources are low. So it's a real problem. No, I take your point. And I think there are often many times where clinicians will be recognizing there is perhaps something to address, but whether that person is ready or may ever be ready to to almost acknowledge it in a public space, which I guess the encounter between a therapist, doctor, and an individual ultimately is, that is something that requires very particular sensitivity. And no matter what the targets, the deadlines, the pressures, if we sort of get something too quickly for that person, that may be traumatizing in a way that may have lifelong consequences. Mm-hmm. And, and not only that, I think it's, it's also conscious of, of stigma. Um, and I'm going to refer specifically to being HIV positive. I had to go and get my eyes tested at an optician, so I won't name it, um, but I had to get my <laughs> eyes tested. 
And um, uh, anyway, so they, I, I filled in all my paperwork, you know, any medical conditions included HIV, etc. And this, you know, was popped into a folder and then I had my eyes tested, came out. And then the folder was transferred from uh, the, the optician's uh, studio, I don't want to have a better word. And so it was this brown folder. And as they placed the brown folder on the desk uh, of the opticians, this big plastic uh, button came out with STD written in Sharpie marker fell out of it. And I looked at that and I said, what's that? And the guy picked it up and put it in the drawer and went, oh, it's nothing. I went, that just said STD, didn't it? And he said, oh, oh did it? I, I didn't notice. I went, well, why have you moved it so quickly? And clearly <laughs> there was a procedure in place, which I'm sure it makes perfect sense. Well, actually it doesn't because I'm undetectable, but there was clearly a procedure in place that if there's an, an STD is identified for some reason, me as a customer, I hasten to add, not a patient, but a customer, um, gets the special STD button that you hide in the folder to make sure everyone's safe. But to have that, after I'm about to spend whatever it is, £600 on a pair of glasses, to see me sort of reduced to a Sharpie marker button uh, really affected me. I just thought, ah, all right. So this, this, this secret button, this terrible sleight of hand is going on with something that is so easy to look after as being an undetectable HIV positive person. So, you know, I just think sometimes we that there are some old clunky systems, which frankly, we just need to think, what if this goes wrong? You know, is there a better way for us to do this? Is it important? Have we educated people enough to know I am HIV positive, I am undetectable, I cannot pass the virus on, provided I'm on my treatment, and I'm not going to die. And you know, what? there are still people in the NHS, and I know this to be the case, who still do not understand where we are with HIV because I've met them. Because of course, when you're so used to going to your specific outpatients clinic, as, as I do, and of course, you've got experts within that field. But perhaps if you've got a junior nurse who wasn't paying attention that day at the university, they, they got their nursing degree, and they see HIV, then there are still nurses who will think, oh, God, he's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna give me AIDS. And you can, and, and this is the thing, and maybe I'm particularly sensitive to it being a director, you can sense and I think actually any sensitive person with empathy does it. You can sense when someone is uncomfortable talking about your condition. And that just gives rise to you feeling, well, if you're uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable. And then you end up in that alerted state. And then any kind of care that you're about to receive goes out of the window because you feel like you're being looked after by somebody who is ignorant or, at worst, prejudice. You were talking earlier about how COVID had introduced a, 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 a terrible feeling of, of loneliness and isolation in your life when it wasn't so easy to get to those shared spaces where safety and exchanging ideas and processing together the extraordinary events are around us. But the picture you paint, which again, I, I go back to your description of, of threat and, and alongside that, that of isolation, that in any setting the burden of that, the stress, because stress in the end is the perception of a threat that you're trying to respond to, I guess is a, is something you live with. Oh yeah, every single day, every single day. I mean, it, it's interesting being a, being a gay man. I think I feel the same anxiety that a lot of um, young women have, I say young women, all women have felt, in that we have been targets specifically for something out of our control. And so there are times when I've you know, when I get on the tube, for example, I live in London, but when I get on the tube, I look at where I'm going to sit and I make sure that, again, that there's enough space around me and I'm not going to sit next to someone that I perceive to be a threat. But I think talking about the safety side of things, I think the way you alleviate those fears is always with the most powerful thing in the world, which is joy. And joy is a glorious, glorious distraction. By talking about my passions, people aren't talking about my sexuality. Or if I'm around other, you know, gay people, and let's not forget there is a gay culture. You mm -hmm. know, there, there are people I know where we have literally marched in the streets for our rights. But on productions where we bonded because early on in my career, it was, it was extraordinary to be with actors where we were doing plays, say, about gay lives. And we were talking openly and honestly about what it is to be gay openly in, in a rehearsal room. Now, if I was directing, a, I don't know, Macbeth, for example, you know, and uh, we were talking about murder and things, well, people wouldn't bat an eyelid. But for some reason, when it comes to sexuality, and it, it reminds me of that, that play, No Sex, Please, We're British. For some reason, when it comes to talking about gay sex, gay lifestyles, gay things, because we've, we've hidden a lot of them because we don't want to make other people uncomfortable, to be able to talk about it gives you just an enormous sense of release. 
And by being isolated, by not being with people who speak my language, whether that's theater, whether that's being gay, whether that's magic, whether that's being an animal lover, but whether that's being working class, whatever those things are, when you're trying to work, when, you, when you're lacking that special language, that language, particularly being gay, that includes so much subtext to it, because that's how we've communicated throughout most of our childhood years. When that's gone, and it, you're only replaced with doom and gloom and isolation, that's when it comes to my mental health, which means you start analysing your own individual voice and you start listening to your individual voice. And without the joy, it starts to tell you some rather gloomy things and you start assessing your purpose in life because you haven't got you haven't been given any other stimulation other than who am I? This is the person you are when you're alone. This is what it's like when you've lost your entire industry and you've lost your friends. Can you survive this? And instead, you, you look for comfort in other ways. I, I sort it out in in food and alcohol and, you know, just doing anything just to, just to tell my body that it's everything's going to be OK. But yes, it's that terrible thing of being an artist. You know, you're you're constantly assessing yourself, the world and everyone around you and trying to work out that narrative. And without those people, well, the narrative can quite often be false. One of the things that I think you're speaking to that makes sense to me in terms of how we then do respond within, I guess, the wider society, but certainly in our, our public services, is allowing people to talk about their actual experience without them feeling the pressure, some of which I guess by now will have become internalised, but without feeling they have to adapt, disguise, suppresses that instinct to describe to another what life is actually like and all sorts of services have their own ways of understanding human experience you know and the medical profession is definitely one where it kind of is organizing you almost before you've sat down in in the doctor's chair but it, it does sound to me that creating space for people to talk about the life they have whatever that is and that's i guess pre-covid you're describing as much as more recently might itself give some release yes i think so i had long-term counseling many years ago and it was very interesting when i was trying to find the right therapist for me and i started off with this absolutely glorious lovely young woman um, who was clearly a very very talented therapist but by virtue of her sort of being a straight woman it was very difficult for me to talk about my lived experience as a gay man because, frankly, there's there was so much secrecy in my lifestyle and the choices that I was making or forced to make. But eventually, the very best counsellor I had was was a 70-year-old <laughs> gay man who, funny enough, uh, had a history of working in the theatre. Now, I was just very lucky to find this particular individual. But, you know, I had a, I had a very terrible time when I was at school. I, I attempted suicide twice. I... I had a, a very, very dark time. And, and I realised that that all comes down to just a childhood and a life of sensing shame. You know, there was no role models for me growing up as a kid on television that were positive gay role models. You know, we were either killing ourselves uh, or we were comedy characters and they were few and far between. And everything I had learned about this word gay was that it was something to be ashamed of. And that came from government all the way down to the kids on my council estate that I grew up. Of course, that sense of shame can, can lead to very destructive behavior. In my case, drugs, a lot of unprotected sex. And indeed, let's not forget, there's an entire industry intertwined with the LGBTQ plus community, which is based on sex, drugs, and alcohol. There's a whole industry dedicated to it. So it's very easy through self-loathing and a need to just escape to end up in that world. And so when you're trying to unpack trauma, as I was with a counsellor, by me talking about having sex with six to ten different guys in a sauna, I remember I mentioned something similar to this to the former therapist I had, the young woman, and I could see it was something she'd never heard before. And yet by having an LGBTQ plus counsellor, and particularly a male counsellor, I hasten to add, I could see he wasn't uncomfortable because he'd heard it time and time and time again. I think this is where we have to be very careful with our language when it comes to equality. You know, we're all the same. We're not. You know, this, this, this strive to have this sort of universal human race, the, the thing that makes us glorious is our difference and our sameness. And that's why the tribal side of being gay and HIV positive is very important to me. Because I can talk about those things that I experienced growing up. And it tends to be quite a universal experience in a way that if I try talking to straight people about that, 
it feels more like a lesson. And that's this, and you know, as an as a HIV positive activist, I mean, I always keep a, a red ribbon on my coat, and I've been the face of the Ter- many Terence Higgins campaigns and endless documentaries and things. And the reason I do that is because the stigma and the ignorance surrounding HIV is is so profound that actually a day doesn't go by where I don't pass on a little bit of information, even if it's as simple as undetectable means untransmittable. Because by the time I die, however many people I've spoken to, that makes a ripple. And people still say to me (laughs) with the HIV thing, they go, how long have you got left? I say, well, about 70 to 80 years, I think, uh, you know, and you just see their face going, what? This, is, this, this isn't this isn't how it's like for Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. And I really think this comes down to just appalling, abysmal sexual health and cultural education at school level. It's, it's extraordinary. And, well, it's not extraordinary. It makes perfect sense. You know, I have HIV and yet there was no kind of gay sex covered when I was at school. And for every single MP that supported Section 28 and and denied generations of children proper sexual health, they should hang their heads in shame. And I will never, and I stress again, never forgive them for what they did to me and and, and generations, generations of gay men. Because there are people in the ground who killed themselves because this government, this culture, this country told them that they were faggots and they didn't they didn't have a right to be who they were or if they did they had to do it behind a door and interestingly here we are at lockdown being stuck behind a door again being unable to live my life being unable to celebrate the fact that i i've only just realized this now talking to you being unable to play because i spent plenty of time behind a locked bedroom when i was a very frightened boy well that's a, that's a really interesting point because it struck me that COVID in many different ways is reminding us of past pandemics, global infections, as HIV will be for many. And yet, as you say, with it, there are also experiences that people have, which might be about having to stay inside for fear or being detained or whatever it is that is bringing to the surface again many, many injustices. Um, I can see that representation within health and other Uh, public services of of LGBTQ plus individuals would be helpful. And especially, as you say, with your counsellor, you know, somebody who wouldn't just understand that these behaviours occur, but perhaps some of the reasons why and could empathise with that. But I wondered what thoughts you had about then those healing processes that are sometimes more associated with, I guess, what could be called restorative justice, where there may be centuries of uh, not just disadvantage, but sort of brutal treatment and exclusion, dispossession and so on that certain communities have had to live with. I just wonder from the LGBTQ plus angle whether there are thoughts about what we can do to somehow promote a sort of cultural healing. I mean, that is uh, that is something I think the NHS has been trying to do for for several centuries. You want me to solve LGBTQ plus? Um, Do you know Do you know something that I would really love the NHS to do? This is this bit off bit off tangent, but it was something that really upset a lot of us. And it's the association of the NHS with the rainbow. That's ours. We haven't got much in the LGBTQ plus community, but when that symbol that that symbol was ours. And it's quite hard when I'm walking around my local neighborhood and I'm seeing my symbol, the rainbow, being adopted by people who I know to be homophobic. Symbolism is very, very important. If a child had drawn, I don't know, the Jewish star of David and said, that's the symbol for the NHS, that wouldn't have flown. That simply just would never have gone any further. But because it's the rainbow and all, the rainbow belongs to everyone, actually. It was such a disregard for how how important that symbol is to us. As I as I sit here now, I can see one. I've got, God, how many books with rainbows on? The trainers I'm wearing at the moment have a, a rainbow on, which was bought for me. It's our symbol. And conversely, it sort of happened by accident to the NHS, because, of course, the NHS was, I believe it was supporting the month we're in now, but the years before, uh, Pride Month. And so all the NHS lanyards to support <laughs> in association with LGBTQ plus people, rather beautifully, went, we'll make our lanyards rainbows. And again, people just thought, oh, the NHS is using a rainbow as its symbol because they had no interest in a Pride Month or an LGBTQ plus celebration month or whatever you want to call it. And I sort of wish the NHS had come out and gone, 
this isn't our symbol. I wish that they had come out and gone, please use this symbol, because it was a, it was such appropriation. And I suspect it was marketing and PR teams going, look, this is great. Everyone's putting up rainbows. It's doing great awareness for the NHS. This is fantastic. Oh, but I think the gays have got that symbol, but we can share it. And it really bugs me. And funny enough, I was with, with my mum doing some shopping in Sainsbury's the other day. She came up from, from Bournemouth to spend time with me in London. And there was a little girl who spotted this, that Sainsbury's had this big sort of rainbow display. And she went, is that for the NHS, mummy? And so it's just another way to make us feel a little bit more invisible. Replaced, actually. Worse than invisible, replaced. I think understanding that we, we, we have literally fought with our lives to be able to hold our, you know, the hands of partners in streets. And there are people like me, I'm, I'm 35 now, so I'm now getting to the point where I'm no longer the youngest person or the oldest person in the room. There's a group of young sort of LGBTQ plus uh, people. Um, I'd gone to see a show, a little cabaret show, and these guys must have been, I don't know, maybe 18, 19, 20. And they were scarlarking about, and they were loud, and they were dressed in, in sort of current fashions of the day, and talking about RuPaul's Drag Race. And for some reason, inside, I couldn't be happy for them. And I thought about it, and I spoke to my friend later that day. I said, why don't I like these young gay kids? Why are they annoying me so much? He said, Andrew, it's because it's so totally unfair. I said, what do you mean? He said, it's because it's so unfair because you didn't have that, did you? And I nearly burst into tears when he said that because it was exactly why I couldn't connect. Because I was seeing these kids who were enjoying a liberty that if only I had had when I was their age. And so I think that's the other thing. Maybe maybe an interesting dimension to look at LGBTQ plus people is how old are they? Have you got somebody who is alive and in their 20s in the 1980s, who lived, who survived the AIDS crisis and likely buried most of their best friends, especially in London or, uh, or Scotland? Have you got somebody who's 18 years old and actually they're a little bit flamboyant and they've got social media and they're being told from every channel, be yourself, be yourself. And actually they're being so overwhelmed with so many different aspects to sexuality that perhaps lived experience and clarity is something they're lacking. Are you someone like me who's, you know, no longer cute and adorable and fit and young and actually is feeling a little bit cantankerous and lived through? You, you know, so I, I think knowing where the LGBTQ plus person has come within this country's history is really as a really helpful guide to anybody about how you speak to them. And funny enough, I was out with a friend, quite a famous friend, actually. He's a really, really good friend. And he thinks it's absolutely hysterical to call me every gay slur under the sun when I'm at the bar. Now, it's said with complete love, and I always know his intention. That's the important thing. His intention is to embarrass me at the bar and have a laugh, and I don't really mind because I know he loves me and I love him. Um, however, he, somebody who was with us heard him do that and nearly grabbed him by the throat and went, don't you ever speak to Andrew like that. And the problem was, was that the, the fixation was on the word, not on the intention of the friendship. And I think that's really important. I think just thinking about people's intent um, when it comes to how we deal with LGBTQ plus people is really important. However, I am noticing younger generations are so offended by so very much that actually that profound language that my generation had is being so diluted by just this constant, constant splintering of needing to identify so many different things rather than what I had to do growing up, which was concentrating on the, the things that I had in common with people. So interestingly, a more broken, the more dangerous society that I grew up at least made, made me forge relationships rather than what I'm noticing in young LGBTQ plus people, which is them totally splintering off from society. And I, I fear that will lead to them having more loneliness than perhaps I've experienced. That's a very powerful message and often one that's echoed with the sort of impact of, of, of social media. But I do want to go back for a moment. And when you were talking about, for those of us in the NHS, being aware of, if you like, the facts of HIV today, yeah. as opposed to what was happening with all the sort of stigma and rumor and gossip of the 1980s, say, but also the importance of history. And that's where someone's age makes a huge difference that what someone has lived through is going to be hugely different uh, different generations and so on given what was happening culturally politically etc and and i think again in health perhaps one of the things that we're starting to learn is to listen to people and it sounds stupid really given that you know doctors and therapists should be kind of listening to to feelings or symptoms or whatever but actually that 
experience of living because what we're seeing with covid and you'll know this in other ways is that there has been a loss of trust because somewhere along the line perhaps we weren't listening to the lives people had as much as we should have so i think that's a yes. powerful message for us to take back there's a there, do you know what there's some very simple things that i'd be delighted to make sure it's recording in this podcast um i think the first thing that was a worry for me in again as, as, an, as an ambassador for many hiv charities and a spokesperson etc I remember the government advice for isolation for people living with HIV. And I, I can't tell you the exact phrase, phrase, phraseology, but it was basically over the lines of HIV positive people on medication haven't got anything to worry about. Now, I, I'm old enough to know and experienced enough with the amount of doctors and medical professionals that they simply can't claim that. There's, there's simply no data whatsoever. So a positive affirmation for something that I know cannot be known is chilling. And you said about history. Let's not forget when AZT was thought to be the wonder drug for HIV. And, and, and a really good example is a very dear friend of mine. His name is Jonathan Blake. Jonathan was the second man in the UK ever to be diagnosed with HIV. And he's still alive to this day. Indeed, if you've seen the film Pride, uh, the character Dominic West plays who dances, that's based entirely on Jonathan's life. Jonathan remembers when they offered him AZT, which was a failed chemotherapy drug for anyone who's never heard of it. Basically, the way they were dealing with the, the groups was um, half of the group got AZT and the other half of the group got a placebo. And Jonathan said, well, if that's the way you're doing it, you can't just give me half the pill, can you? And they said, what do you mean? He said, I'm not going to be a guinea pig, I'm afraid. And Jonathan's survival, because we later knew that, yes, AZT had extraordinary results to begin with, but then ultimately the entire immune system shut down rapidly thanks to it because of, of how it had been sort of supercharged. And so Jonathan attributes his survival to not taking the failed chemotherapy drug that was fed to thousands upon thousands of gay, not just gay people, but predominantly gay people in the 80s and haemophiliacs and heroin users and Haitians in the States. Th that was a failed drug that, that people were being given. Now, I am double vaccinated. I am not an anti-vaxxer in any way, shape or form. I'm delighted to have received my Pfizer vaccinations. But the fear of being given a new drug, which wiped out generations of people, well, suddenly when I talk about AZT, and we think about the vaccinations, I can understand the fear of some our elder members of society who who, who were given the wrong drug because it was all we had was experimentation. And, and that's their lived experience. That's their lived experience of going to the likes of St. Thomas's and all those great frontline hospitals and just seeing mass death and failed drugs and inept doctors because no one knew what it was. And when I start talking about the AIDS crisis like that, well, what other crisis does that start to sound like? Sure. <laughs> it's, yeah. it, you know, and also the last thing, the last thing on the, on that sort of history, this government, when it was talking about a pandemic of which we've never seen before, I found deeply insulting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was it was very much that, well. That was just the gay pandemic, wasn't it, or the African pandemic? You know, still millions of people are dying of AIDS in this world, and no one's particularly you know particularly sub sub Saharan Africa. It is it is absolutely uh, an epidemic, and you know th th this country went through the AIDS crisis in the eighties and nineties. You know, we, we had Paul Gambaccini and John Hurt, you know, doing uh, NHS adverts, the Don't Die of Ignorance campaign, when we didn't know how the virus was passed on. And yes, of course, we later discovered it was through bodily fluids, et cetera, et cetera. But I just thought it was hugely insulting to every NHS worker that had ever been through the AIDS pandemic, and indeed anyone that's ever, that lived through it and was touched by it, to say, we've never seen the like. Because you want to go, you bloody did. Just you don't teach that history in schools. You know, it, it was only recently a big thing when that we've just had a drama on television. It's a sin that was about it. And again, lots of people phoned me up and said, I had no idea that's what's going to happen to you. I said, no, 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 that's not what's going to happen to you. That's what happened then. I, you know, undetectable, not going to die. So in many ways, this 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 lack of talking about not just LGBTQ plus history, but just, you know, pandemic history, health history, this country's history. HIV doesn't discriminate. It doesn't, you know, look out for somebody that's got an interest in musical theatre. You know, if you're having unprotected sex, there's every chance you, you, can, you could be HIV positive. You know, to see that drama on Channel 4 being shown, it actually reiterated to some people, you know, the falsehoods that be frightened of people with HIV, they'll kill you or they'll die. And so 
you know, I really applaud people at the Terence Higgins Trust and indeed the, in collaboration with the NHS uh, and many other great organisations like um, Positive East and Stonewall to some extent, who are funding national HIV awareness campaigns themselves. And I would like to see far more stories uh, in the media, far more national campaigns, just with the facts of today, because I'm really tired of going on a date with somebody and them hearing HIV and they see it like it's a permanent dent in a car. And actually, do I want a boyfriend with HIV, regardless of the fact that I can't do any harm, or do I just find another gay who hasn't got it? And that can destroy your self-esteem when you think, literally can't do anything about it and actually having hiv i'm i'm far happier to have hiv compared to say something like diabetes or crohn's you know there's far worse things to have i take a pill a day and the stigma surrounding hiv is is very very tough and the reason is it's insidious because by virtue of the gay community being so insecure in itself you know of course great humor comes from insecurity and a need to deflect. That's where our wit comes from. That's where you know our understanding of subtext comes from. It's th- this need to communicate and deflect and not be hurt. But the problem is, is me growing up in those gay bars, gay clubs, gay theatre companies, whatever. AIDS and HIV, especially amongst gay men, was a was a jokey subject and a shameful subject. So many times I heard AIDS jokes. So many times I was warned about somebody because they've got the riddle or they're riddled with it or they're HIV positive or careful she's got AIDS, even though the AIDS pandemic was over. And the problem is, is when I was diagnosed, which I'm very happy to talk about, when I was diagnosed, as I stood, funny enough, on an equally as sunny day as it is today, it's beautiful today, um, I was in a suit, stood on the street, I'd just been diagnosed and I heard every single joke I'd ever heard about HIV and AIDS from other gay people. And indeed, every joke that I had ever made, you know, to fit in with the tribe. And so you find yourself being HIV positive in a marginalized group within a marginalized group. And because it's an invisible illness, of course, you still hear those jokes. Um, or indeed, you're given advice. I, I was I remember a few years ago, I was kissing a boy on a dance floor, having a lovely time. And a friend of mine grabbed me by the wrist, fob marched me out to the stairs and went, you can't do that anymore. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? said, you can't just go home with guys anymore. You've got AIDS. I went, I haven't. Well, what's with And I literally had to explain to him in a club, pounding music, after a few drinks, I haven't got AIDS, I've got HIV and I can't pass it on. And he didn't believe me, you know? And that was a friend doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you certainly make a powerful case for not just having the facts there to constantly challenge the, what we're familiar with now as misinformation and, uh, and of course, disinformation that may have commercial and political drivers behind it, but also that in response to these terrible times, as a culture, we can so quickly forget, so quickly want to put it behind us. And it's almost like there's no organizational memory then of what has gone before. And that's where I think, if I'm understanding, Andrew, the creative industries can have a very powerful impact in terms of making sure the stories are still told. They need, obviously, the airtime and the the visibility, but whether it's HIV and AIDS or perhaps now for COVID, we're going to need to remember and we're going to need to make those that are still vulnerable to stigma and abuse and all the things that may come with perceived risk of threat are not left behind. I think it's about meaningful action. I've really realised this over the past few years. Because there's a very, I think it's a good intention, or or for the most part, it's a good intention, which is any kind of social issue, whether it's LGBTQ+, whether it's HIV, whether it's racism, whether it's whatever, when did we boil down our most meaningful actions to something as lazy as a tweet, a self-gratifying tweet? I remember being in Bournemouth, you know, as a teenager, organizing the first Bournemouth Pride It was a major deal to get council permission just to be seen in the street with our rainbow flags and drag queens and just the concept of celebrating being gay. And I spent years of my life doing that or the plays that I've put on in the West End and internationally, like meaningful action to try and reach people through empathy. And yet everyone seems to think that actually spreading awareness is is a Facebook post and a tweet. And the thing I find sort of perverse about that is whilst I'm sure the intent is good, you can't deny all of those tweets also come with a retweet button and a like button and a share button. So you're gonna go, well, yeah, that's gonna help the message. Sure, but it's also basically just to feed your social media profile and look good. If you wanna make a difference, go and volunteer for a charity. 
like I've done. Go and put a piece of art together. Go and read a book. And I'm really concerned that when it's coming to LGBTQ plus rights, etc., and, and social media, that essentially we're just paying sort of self-gratifying lip service rather than making a difference. All those extraordinary charities and theatre companies for LGBTQ plus people and indeed other great support organisations were born out of a need for change. And you know, the more, the more I hear from them, they're lacking volunteers, they're lacking funds. I, I'm pretty sure that the likes of Stonewall and Terence Higgins Trust and Positive East and any number of other great charities that I could name here would prefer a £10 donation than your tweet. And I promise you they can do more with a £10 or do both. But don't just do the tweet <laughs> because it's lazy and it's self-serving. And I think I think we've got to be careful that what can we do in the real world to make a difference? I can't remember what I tweeted yesterday. So what makes you think anyone that read my tweets will remember either? So what can I do to, in, in the real world? That's the most important thing for me. Yes, but I wonder whether you're also touching on something else I think you spoke of earlier, which is that to achieve a, a sort of sense of, of less isolation and loneliness, that does require something a bit more at depth, a bit whether it's in terms of connection or, or yes. meaning or, or thoughtfulness and you know, something that's more reflexive. Um, I, I'm thinking of the sort of model of fast and slow thinking that I'm sure you know, that, that actually there are some things that take time, sometimes patience, sometimes almost cause some pain or frustration along the route. But actually, there's something more sustaining that emerges from that that might be particularly valuable also at this time where recovery and restoration uh, should be very much to the fore of everyone's minds, not just to escape what has happened, but to cut, somehow make sense and process what's happened. You actually made me made me think of something that, that was very helpful for me during during lockdown, which is, I mean, there's, I don't know, 18, 19,000 people that follow me on Twitter and this, that and the other. So there's an enormous audience. And for many, many years, I've sort of really enjoyed, you know, being snarky or funny or intelligent or inspiring or whatever, using that account. But actually, I really noticed that people weren't able to connect and they were bored. I think that's the big thing. They were bored. Yeah, yeah. That just fights were erupting all over the place over often nothing. I mean, uh, it's almost like, you know, we invented the internet. You know, we thought the internet was going to be this wonderful World Wide Web. You know, and then we went, oh, actually, people are going to use it for porn. But actually, we found out what people really like to use the internet for. And that's telling people off. That's basically what the internet is sort of, and social media has become. It's either I'm virtuous or I'm going to tell you off. And what was interesting, because people were bored and didn't have anything to do, obviously their screen time would have escalated. And because there's no sort of considered thought, it's all very headline or direct, then of course you start taking in by virtue, if, certainly if you've had good empathy, you start taking in all that hostility. So what I really did over lockdown, which was my real saving grace, which is finding ways to connect with physical things I can do. I have several bookshelves in my in my home filled with some of my favorite plays that I haven't read for years. So I'd pick up a play I hadn't read for a long time. I would pick up those recipe books that I buy every January after the Christ after Christmas to try and have a diet. Once I've realized I've got to go on a diet, I picked up old magic books and taught myself tricks. I did some model making. I started doing artwork. I, I've got a, an art shop now, which I never had before, um, doing digital art prints. Um, and found myself going, hang on a sec, if I put my phone down, why don't I use this time to just get some proper hobbies and indeed learn some proper skills and enjoy studying again? And it, it's been it's been absolutely life changing. I would say before the pandemic, if I wasn't doing a show, and that's the hardest thing about being a freelancer in the theatre, you just you know uh, you lose um, when you haven't got a show. You feel like you've lost your identity because you know I'm a director, so therefore I only exist when I'm directing. But actually, what was what was amazing about all of this is if I wasn't directing, then I would be with theatre people talking about the fact that I wasn't directing, and perhaps I would go out a little bit too much, or I would sit on my phone using the social media channels connected to my industries and and tribes. But actually. This has sort of made me lot hunger for physical things, less things on my phone. Actually, picking up the phone and having an actual conversation. There's a fantastic app that I discovered called Clubhouse. And Clubhouse is basically social media, but you have to communicate with your voice. 
and you're in these lovely rooms. And that was the most comforting thing, even if I hadn't seen anyone for months and months on end, that actually I could pick up that app and there was a group of strangers who would be interesting, that I could be curious about. I mean, admittedly, God knows how much I spent on all sorts of books and hobby materials and things. <laughs> um, but just to sit at your table and make something again and not be distracted by your phone or indeed endless government briefings and fear and, and, and to mess up recipe. I did that loads of times. I kept pick, picking out these recipes from a particularly complicated recipe book. I don't know uh, how many courgettes I have obliterated uh, trying to make them delicious. <laughs> I don't know a way to make courgettes delicious, by the way, still to this day, but I tried. And I've got a really happy memory of just me <laughs> and objects and things. And I realized just how powerful I am as an individual. You know, I am able to change my mood. I am able to learn new things. It's just the, the sadness came from not being able to share it with anyone. And again, with something a bit more of a physical presence than a device allows us. Although I, I, I think in some ways you do yourself a disservice because I, I suspect many just listening to your stories, your experiences, your activities of what actually helped, what reconnected you with something more joyous is, is still going to offer comfort. But I, I think after such an extraordinary series of, of powerful issues, messages, uh, empathy for those that have struggled, Andrew. I, I fear we're edging towards the end of the podcast. And if I, I felt less certain, no, I've never felt less certain about doing this than, than I have today, which is that we have traditionally tried to end the podcast on something that is a bit more joyous and perhaps more in <laughs> yes. keeping with your, your last point. And cruel as it is for some, given their past experiences, we've tended to end the podcast by suggesting that we are about to go back into lockdown. Oh, don't. Sort of, <laughs> I know. Well, I, Anything quite, but that. I, I, I feel I feel the emails could get out of hand going down <laughs> this road, but it is our tradition. And as you've discovered in the NHS, we're sometimes rather slow to change them. Um, <laughs> Uh, we, we, we would invite you, if you were to go back into lockdown, to think of three famous prominent people that you could take with you. And that's to allow people to understand other sides of you as well, because mm. you, you have touched on the joy that's also there in your life. So going back into lockdown, the Prime Minister's just announced it. Who are you going to call? Who am I going to call? And hopefully they're going to show up. I mean, it'll be the of most, course. it'll be the strangest phone call they've ever had. This you know, <laughs> unusual queer director who lives in Mitch and wants you to live with him during lockdown. We hope you get on, but you're quite right. Who would I want to be there? I would love, as I've spoken about theatre quite a bit on this, my first would be um, Stephen Sondheim. Uh, for those okay. who don't know, is an uh, extraordinary uh, contemporary musical theatre composer. I think I would, I, I, mainly because um, I have a piano in my flat. So um, a glass of wine with Stephen Sondheim singing through all of his various shows and learning how to sing them properly would yeah, be absolutely yeah. glorious. Um, I mentioned uh, that I have a real passion for, for magic. I actually have been studying a lot of his work during the pandemic, his various lecture notes and things. Um, so Darren Brown is actually somebody I would choose. Most will probably know him, but he's a famous magician and mentalist. Um, and uh, his techniques he basically revolutionized the way that mental magic is, is performed. And I mean, I've only got a one bedroom flat, so I don't know why I'm necessarily going to um, put all these people up. But I would love, to, I haven't seen him for such a long time. He's actually a friend of mine. So, and actually, we well, did communicate. cheating a little bit, but let's hear who it is. It, it, it would be uh, it would be Stephen Fry because I just haven't seen him for for so very long. Um, so I would love to spend time. I think if I've got Darren Brown, Stephen Fry, and Stephen Sondheim, I'm convinced we could create the most spectacular written magical musical ever. The four of us together, I'm sure we could create something truly glorious that might you know outshine Les Misérables. <laughs> I think the genius of your selections is also having Darren Brown in there. If you are in a one-bedroom flat, presumably he could persuade you you're in some glorious mansion with all the resources. Oh, yes. So uh, on minimal means, you might end up having a very positive experience. So I, I take my hat off to you for, for that choice. He's also written two extraordinarily good books. One is called Happy and one is called Happier. Uh, uh -huh. So people think of him just as a, just as a magician. His books that he's written is very much connected with mental 
mental health and how we are happy as individuals and the, the lies that we tell ourselves and the truths that we, we tell ourselves about and the fallacies of, of self-help books. So he wrote yeah. two self-help books, but they're actually very good. I really recommend them for people interested in mental health. They're, they're fascinating. Well, I hope you also get a little commission for that uh, free plug for him. <laughs> oh, who knows? Oh, I'm sure they'll get a second hand on eBay for a quid. Don't, don't worry about getting Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, we are going to allow you, although you are in lockdown and possibly in your own home, um, to have some additional media. And this was based on the first people that ended up being quarantined, where they were in hospital, and the pretty much the only thing that survived was a, a tablet or a phone that they could have some mm. media on. So was there, in addition to Sondheim and uh, Darren Brown and uh, Stephen Fry, any music, play, book, film, TV, theatre recorded, I guess? I mean, obviously, all of those things, I have answers for every individual thing yes. when it comes to that, because they're all my very favourite things as a, as, as a creative person. Um, what would I choose? Well, do you know what? It would make sense for me to say the thing that I actually did use, um, and I'm still mm -hmm. getting through them. That is the complete works of the Tarbell Course in Magic, which is a glorious book. Of, okay. There are eight volumes. So A, there's plenty. So I would, I would probably do that only because, frankly, if I've got Stephen... Darren and, and Stephen Sondheim all in the room. I think I'll be sick to death of talking about theatre. So at yeah. least then I can just go, <laughs> I can go and sit in my bedroom, you know, to try and work on my top change, which is something you do with cards and, and just work on some, some really nice physical skills of magic. That's probably what I would do. Some, some really good sleight of hand sounds a good, good step. And, and you are allowed a luxury again with quite a, an earnest group, dare I say, would there be anything to lighten the mood perhaps? I mean, a boyfriend would be nice. Um, <laughs> really like one of those. Um, but I, I suppose that 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 that's almost counts like a like a prostitution service. So we probably shouldn't encourage that. Yeah, yeah. Um, something, something, uh, something. That would be my luxury. Well, my luxury is probably the item that I. I I have, which is my piano. It's a it's a lovely thing just to sit down and if you're feeling a little bit sad and you press some keys and suddenly that that emotion within you is then released somehow in, in a musical form and just, you know, jamming around on a piano is funny enough, when I was able to be in a bubble, one of my very, very, very best friends, um, Ben Papworth, who was a musical director, we very safely very safely with too much Malbec would often sing through an entire score of a musical together and that's my memory of that. When I could finally have a, a friend round, that's my memory. Uh, the, the two of us drunkenly at the piano, singing show tunes, pissing off our neighbours, and looking at those rainbow flags that belong to us. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I might be able to uh, help with that, I think, but I would also, without risking a public health emergency, think if you have a piano, it sounds like some Malbec needs to go with it. So. Oh, um, Malbec absolutely does need to go. Thank you very much. That will be much more appreciated. <laughs> Just what the doctor ordered, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> you, are encouraging the, you are encouraging me to drink lots of Malbec for my health. I can take that as a, yeah, as a proper yeah. piece of medical uh, advice. It's, it's food for the soul, this one, I think. Um, but, Andrew, thank you so much for giving us so generously of your time today, but not just that, being able to connect with all those times past that really shouldn't be forgotten and should be informing whatever we're doing in health and more widely in society today and, and really absolutely bringing alive the lived experience of many people from the LGBTQ plus community. I, I'm sure... You know, isolation can't always be lessened by many things, but hearing from someone that knows your world, knows your life, does help. So thank you. And I have a slight suspicion that we may want to talk to you at some future point about also what it's been like to work in an industry that has been so devastated by COVID too, if, if you aren't writing that extraordinary musical with the two Stevens <laughs> and Darren. So thank you. They're a bit more expensive than I am, so sadly I'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to wait for that one. But yes, it's, it's been a real pleasure chatting to you, and thank you so much for, for, for showing an interest. You know, it, 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 it's that sort of thought to ask someone like myself to talk about this that, that enables us to be heard. So thank you for the opportunity. It's very important to me. 